As healthcare systems in the United States continue to grapple with population health and the ways in which more upstream issues can be addressed, sometimes the novel answers aren't nearly as far away as leaders might think. Sometimes they're right next door in the form of day-in and day-out strategies that are being deployed by community groups and agencies focused like a laser on people with multiple challenges in their lives, those social determinants of health. But that's not all there is to it. A change in outlook look is also critical. The problems community groups are trying to address in neighborhoods across the country, be it poor housing, unemployment, violence, despair, often exist right alongside strengths and assets, coexisting like competing possibilities in the very same places and impacted individuals. And it's this potential that community change agents are starting to tap into here in the U.S., and I should also say outside the U.S., because we've got Scotland represented here uh, on today's show. And uh, we think healthcare providers could learn uh, about some of these uh, potentials as well. So we have great examples coming up on this edition of WIHI. And I do want to welcome you to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you live like today and after the show via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. And if there's one thing planning today's WIHI underscored for me, it's that there's no shortage of innovation taking place in the communities we're going to hear about today, increasingly using the tools and methodologies of quality improvement, but adapting them to local settings and issues and doing some really creative things with some tools that many of you are familiar with. So that's enough from me. Let's get right to introductions. But first, here's John Gothier. He's going to remind you how to make the most of your time with us today. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. Uh, on the right of the screen is our chat window. If you've tuned into WHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions. So make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to the program by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message in the host to the ch- in the chat, but a simple solution to any hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. We have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I've provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they will send them your way. Finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on the program, and we need your help for that. Please take some time after the program to fill out our very quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Madge. All right. Thanks, John. We'll we'll turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about the halfway mark of the show. Feel free to tweet during and after the program. Thanks for including at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweets so others can be connected uh, into the conversation. All right. We're going to do some introductions right now, and I'm going to be really brief because we've got a very full show, and I really want to get to the substance of things, and you'll see longer bios on all the slides 
slides here. So I'm going to start across the pond, and that's with Susan Hanna. She is the head of improvement programs for the Scottish government's Early Years Collaborative and Raising Attainment for All. Uh, those two organizations have merged, and Susan will tell you about that. Welcome from Scotland. Thank you so much for thank you so much for having me today on on your um, your web show. So, oh right, we're gonna we're gonna get to all the introductions. Sorry, Susan, didn't mean to confuse you. We're gonna introduce everyone, and then I'll I'll come right back to you. I promise. Okay. Okay, great. Uh, perfect. All right, now we're going to jump to Wisconsin uh, in the United States. Greg Vandenberg is the Director of Giving and Community Engagement at U.S. Venture. Uh, he oversees the Basic Needs Giving Partnership, which is a funding collaborative in northeast Wisconsin. A welcome to you, Greg. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. Here in the studio across from me, I've got Renee Boynton-Jarrett. She's a practicing primary care pediatrician at Boston Medical Center, a social epidemiologist, and the founding director of the Vital Village Community Engagement Network in Boston. And you'll hear more about that momentarily. Welcome, Renee. Also in the studio, we've got Ninyan Lewis. She's an executive director at IHI, currently leading IHI's Triple Aim for Population Focus Area, which encompasses many things, including community-wide improvement efforts. Welcome, Ninyan. Thanks, Madge. All right, and we've got Shoma Stout, uh, sometimes in the office, more often than not, up in the air and somewhere else, and today it's Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, Shoma has worked as a primary care doctor and health system transformation leader in the safety net area for over 15 years and in global community and population health for over 20 years. She's the executive lead of 100 Million Healthier Lives, convened by IHI, and more on that, too, in a moment. Welcome, Shoma. Hi, Imaj. Okay. Pleasure to be here. Perfect. All right. Right to it, Ninyan. All right. I often, Ninyan often is like my, I don't know what you call that, an anchor person in some sports uh, type of thing, but uh, Ninyan's going to get us uh, going here. So you and Shoma both are going to help frame the community work we're going to hear about today. We're linking initiatives in Scotland, across a whole country, in northeast Wisconsin, that's a region, and in Boston. So what do these efforts have in common, and what do they say about how, uh, I guess, what's going on with changing the trajectory right now with uh, health and health outcomes across populations and communities? Thanks, mm-hmm. Ninyan. Thanks, Madge, and thanks for having me. And I couldn't be more excited, even in the midst of getting over a a pretty brutal cold, to be here to help lift up the stories, really, of the three communities that are joining us that are sort of lifting up the hood of their car and sharing their war stories of the things that have gone well, the fail-forward stories of the things that haven't gone so well, and really um, hearing from them what it means to bring this work to life. So um, in order to, to just frame us and ground us, um, I want to bring up a three-part framework that actually comes to us from the Interaction Institute for Social Change. Um, our team at IHI has been loving um, this framework because it's been so um, it's been a re- one that resonates with communities. And when we think about success in communities, oftentimes, especially in QI work in the past, um, we've tended to think about what does results look like? How do we move the big dial? How do we get to outcomes? However, um, there are actually other things at play. Um, within your community in the context of your work that actually can make or break whether or not you actually get results. And so balancing what we would call results or, or goal or, or 
task accomplishment with the relationships that you're building and then the way and the spirit in which the work is carried out or the process. We've all been a part of, of efforts where we got to where we needed to go, but it was painful the whole way um, and really balancing um, both the process and the relationships. We've also been, and I, I, in my experience, part of coalition of efforts where we build a lot of relationships and we went to a lot of meetings, but we didn't get a, a whole lot done. So um, using this as almost a set of balancing measures helps us ground what um, quality improvement work can look like. And actually, I think um, standalone organizations and certainly healthcare can lend um, a lot from, from this framework as well. So what does that mean then when we bring that to life in communities when we think about the context? It means that our work isn't necessarily the same as when we're working within one organization where we have one set of leaders who are setting the priority and the vision and, and reallocating the money and the time and the energy and the people. Um, and there's no boss within a community. So we have to think about the work differently. So when we think about results, you have to really be comfortable with maybe we don't have all the answers. Oftentimes, communities are coming together on really tough issues. If it could be solved by hard work alone or by alone work alone, we would have done it already as organizations ourselves. And so these communities are taking on things like school readiness um, and poverty reduction, where there aren't common definitions, there aren't common measures, and it's a bit of a brain buster. So really recognizing that you're going to have to, quote unquote, learn your way through this because not one stakeholder has the answer and really allowing the space for that. Um, nothing about this community without this community. Um, oftentimes in organizations, sometimes you're able to just have a strong leader that says, you know what, this is what we're going to do. And get on the bus or don't get on the bus. However, you have real people who are affected by the changes that you're putting in place, those with lived experience who have something to say. And if they're not in the room being a part of the solution, both in the design and the implementation, then your ability to have sustainable results, um, you're going to not get much traction. Um, understanding the pace. Um, and it says over here in relationships that change moves at the speed of trust. Um, oftentimes we tend to think we've, we're charting, chartering a quality improvement project. We think that we'll know that we um, saw improvement when this happens. Well, sometimes there are other things at play. <laughs> um, and so sometimes it's going to move faster than you think it will, like political um, uh, motives might, might push the timeline faster than you're ready to design a magically wonderful initiative and you have to just get started before you're ready. Or it might take longer than you think. And so being able to move and bend um, with that um, is really crucial here. In the process, really paying close attention to the pedagogical aspects of QI. Um, quality improvement is pretty technical. It's really jargony. <laughs> we all can agree with that. Can I get an amen on that one? Um, and so we have to think about both what we're teaching and how we teach it. So talking about something like system of profound knowledge, um, something that in a community, those words aren't going to resonate because it's very much specialized knowledge. So how do we strip all of the jargon out, talk about quality improvement in a way that really resonates for the everyday person, which is really the science of making things better? Um, and then also how you're teaching it. Um, not everyone in a community can free up two days to be in a training in a classroom. So how are you doing it in just-in-time coaching, in shadowing, using games, um, allowing the, the process to build relationships even as you're teaching QI, having that um, in the front of your mind. Infusing joy in the process. Um, in the past, I've seen quality improvers talk about joy being a natural output, that if we 
make our work more efficient, then joy will come out of our work because we had more time. Actually, that's joy as an output. But in this work, you have to really think about joy as an input. That can this work by you coming together as a community and working on something that is very, very tough, can it make you re-inspire yourself into why you got into this work to begin with? And oftentimes the, the folks that are at the front lines of this work in community are doing direct service delivery in education and early childhood development and social services, et cetera. And they really do need that, that inspiration. So how do you use QI to be a joyful and in, inspiring process? Understanding that you can learn quality improvement and know the methods and you can have the motivation to do it. But if you're having trouble keeping your lights on, um, or you're changing leaders um, every year within your small, very small organization. For some of these organizations involved in some of these quality improvement efforts that you're going to hear about later, they have like two or three people on staff, and two of them deliver services out on the front lines every day. So um, really trying to balance um, teaching people the methods and having them understand what it means to innovate, but then also balancing what they can really get done so it's not done off sort of the side of their desk, as, as we would say. Um, on the relationship side, really understanding community history and the context. How have how has the community met these tough challenges in the past? Um, whose voice has been lifted up and whose voices have been continually marginalized systemically for ages? And knowing when you walk in that there's so many things um, going, going, going around in the water that you can't see that um, when you take on something like this, it may not be a new effort. Um, really trying to understand how has the community met um, issues like this in the past. Um, I already spoke to the co-production with community members. We're seeing that more and more, that how do you engage those with lived experience, not as a token um, sort of advocate or someone that just sits on an advisory council, um, but w someone who, who brings their lived experience lift it up in a way that's that's valued just as much as professional or academic expertise that um, my my ability to deal with this issue every day brings a, a different light to this subject that adds value in a way that no one else at the table can can bring and so um, really trying to understand how do you engage those with lived experience in a very meaningful way um, balancing network connection and content I think in communities, um, oftentimes they have not been exposed to quality improvement methods before. Actually, there have been methods that have been pretty much trapped within either industry or agriculture or healthcare for the last 25 years. So these are pretty new methods. And so oftentimes the, the community-wide efforts that we've seen in the past have been around collaboration and coordination, and um, they're coalition-driven, so they're very much um, a learning network style of a learning system where the anchor is the meeting where you come together and you share your your challenges, um, and then you kind of go off and you do your own thing again. And then you come back and the anchor is the meeting to share more knowledge amongst each other. Um, however, there's not a common execution method. Um, and in the improvement efforts, we flip it. The anchor is the action between the meetings of what are we testing? What are we measuring over time? What are we seeing um, as our theory of change? And as we start to provoke the system in different ways, how are we evolving that theory? And then the meetings that we use to come together are all in service of the work that's in between those meetings. And so helping um, communities sort of flip that on its head and really understand that really the, the work happens at a small scale in that testing, that iterative testing in between meetings. So things are, are different in communities and also, you know, I've talked to people even within healthcare organizations who hear this and they go, man, 
it is the same inside my organization. I wish I could have thought about it in that way. So you're going to be able to see more of this brought to life through um, the communities that we have today. Um, I'm going to pass it to Shoma to help um, continue to tease this out. But this um, idea of results, process, and relationships and balancing those three, if you're optimizing for one, you're suboptimizing all three. So that has been um, incredibly useful to us. Okay. Thank you so much, Ninyan. Let's turn now to Shoma um, and like Ninyan, uh, who has been learning uh, in the process of sort of developing uh, new ideas and models. And I think there's a kind of inventiveness uh, to, to all of this work. And one of these ideas that Shoma is going to tell us about um, is communities of solutions. So we'll bring up that slide. But uh, thanks, Shoma, uh, for uh, picking up where Ninyan left off. Thanks. Sure. Uh, thank you, Madge. So, you know, as uh, Ninyan was just describing about thinking about recognizing that in work in communities and, frankly, probably work in any complex uh, environment, you need to think about relationships, process, and results together. Over the last two years in the, in the 100 Million Healthier Lives Initiative, we've had the privilege of walking and deeply learning uh, alongside 24 communities that are, are passionate about going on this journey to change. And one of the things, there, there are communities in the SCALE initiative. And these communities are, they have what we describe as a fire in their belly to accelerate the process of change. They represent groups um, working together as community coalition, working together across at least three sectors coming in. And the, the thing that really distinguished them is their desire to to passionately go about the process of accelerating their journey. And so as we worked with these communities, we, we from the beginning, began helping them think in terms of relationships, process, and results. And as we looked at the journey that these, com- these scale communities took, and as we looked across at communities all across uh, the country that had uh, been able to make successful change together, like the culture of health price communities, as well as communities uh, globally that had been able to create a successful sort of process of sustainable community change, um, which was leading to real outcomes, but also leading to a growth in the change process itself. We realized that there were some common behaviors that those communities had, as well as some common mindsets and a set of common practices. So the behaviors of a communities of solution have, are, we say, are in three different buckets. One is about how people relate to themselves, to each other, and people uh, and places that are most affected by inequity. A second is how the community creates change. And the third is how the community creates abundance. And I'm just going to very briefly describe some of those behaviors in each of those buckets. So for how people relate to each other, you know, if you think about the difference between a healthcare organization and a community, in a healthcare organization, there's a CEO and a management structure and people who are in an, in a more hierarchical organization, um, as they relate to each other. In a community, there is no CEO. A community is a place with multiple networks of people that are interacting with one another in a dynamic way. There is no option if you want to get something done that is not just about what you can control, but really 
encompasses all the determinants of health and well-being that are, that are needed to really improve health, most of which lie outside the walls of the healthcare system. We need to do that in a way that builds relationships. And one of the most common kinds of relationships we often don't build are uh, with people with, who are most affected by inequity. We have a long history of trying to guess what would work for them. And what, we've, what we know is that that is an incredibly inefficient way to go about creating change. That, are the, that when we're people with uh, lived experience are able to come together with community connectors and formal leaders, not only to be part of a needs assessment process, but actually to be part of designing the solutions, they much more quickly tell us what would work and what wouldn't work and are effective at being able to help us get to outcomes faster. And, and really, when we see that the process of community change isn't just about one group of people that holds it, but rather um, one of the ways that people begin to relate to each other is that a critical mass of people in that community across sectors begin to see themselves as stewards of a community's well-being um, and, and have the agency and the capacity to create change. That means the skills of improvement, but also the skills of learning how to see the assets and to, to create trust uh, together. That begins to get us real change. Um, and that really direct relates to then how communities that are successful at this approach the change process. They know that change, they believe change is possible. They focus on meaningful outcomes for people and places. The outcomes that they pursue aren't some theoretical outcomes that someone else out there has said matters. They're, they're able to describe those outcomes in deeply meaningful ways. They're able to say it's not, it's not simply adverse childhood events. It's um, they can put a, a name and a face to that and a, and a, a picture of what it would look like for, um, com, for children to be growing up in their communities so that they're thriving uh, and can describe what that looks like and are able to do, uh, do that in a measurable way. Um, they ask questions like whose lives are going to get better because they're here, um, and they approach the change process in a dynamic way. They're not afraid to learn and fail forward. They're not afraid to very quickly Try to try something uh, to to see whether it would work, and if it doesn't work, to actually change direction. It's the heart of improvement, and they never approach that process of improvement without doing that in a in, in co-design and co-production mode. They don't see themselves as terminally unique, so they're ready adopters of um, things that other people might have developed, knowing that they don't have to reinvent all the PDSA cycles that have gone to creating something, and and they have a real humility and a willingness to adopt change and see that um, that they're really part of growing uh, not just relationships and process, but they create a process that grows trust and joy and meaning and helps to, to accelerate the process of change. And because they're, they're growing, approaching the change process in this way, these communities have very different ways of creating abundance. As they grow trust, they're able to share assets in traditional and non-traditional ways. Uh, we know of a local hospital, um, uh, a hospital that decided that they would think about uh, and see their assets not just as a uh, 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 provider, deliverer of health care, which is, of course, what they did, but that to see themselves as an employer that could contribute to a living wage campaign. And in, in that role, they not only decided that they would pay all of their employees uh, part-time and full-time a living wage, but they calculated that in their region, if they could get other employers in this in their region, if they could get 20 large employers to 
adopt to the same behavior, that they would be able to have 80% of people in their region have a, a living wage. And, and now there are up to seven of those 20 now. So they're just able to think in a very different way about what it would take to, to change their um, circumstance. Uh, they have trust and governance processes to share resources. And they re realize that working with people with lived experience helps to unlock what we say is trapped human potential, trapped because of inequity and the systems and structures of inequity, and untapped potential. So they don't see that uh, as, uh, they don't see that process of, of addressing equity as a resource thing. They see it as a process of gaining resources in the community. And as a result, they prioritize the development of leaders at every level. So these are just some examples of this, but what happens in these communities is um, that are sort of following results process relationships as they begin to develop that set of behaviors and, and processes and structures of how they create change uh, that lead to uh, outcomes, not just in one thing, but in what we're seeing in the scale communities, uh, including some of the ones, uh, in, including all of the communities that are presenting today, is they're able to achieve uh, multiple outcomes that they're able in, in multiple areas that as they learn what they need to do together with the people that they're accompanying in the community, um, that together they're able to, to seamlessly go from improving food security to improving economic development and jobs because that's what's needed to improve the health and well-being of the community. Suddenly, the idea that mental, physical, social, and spiritual well-being of people and places it is not only not it becomes becomes intrinsically connected with one another, and they have the assets together as a group to be able to address all of that. And I think that's that's the vision of what it looks like to be a community of solution. And we're we're learning about all the different ways that communities are doing that as a part of Hundred Million Lives. And we encourage any of you who are part of community-based change processes who are interested in looking at how they uh, how they are able to use the, the kinds of the, the ways of approaching skills of building relationships, process results, to create a, and you adopting these kinds of behaviors to become communities of solution, we'd love to hear from you. Thank you, Shoma. Thank you so much. So from Shoma and Ninyan, we've gotten some foundational ideas and some of the observations and uh, learning pulling through uh, several years of experience now, but especially I'd say even the last few years. And among the teachers <laughs> uh, is Renee uh, from uh, Vital, uh, excuse me, Vital Village Network. Um, so you're you're listening uh, along with me. So just jump right in and uh, talk to us about uh, Vital Village Network, and perhaps uh, we'll hear echoes of some of the things that Ninyan and Shoma have just mentioned. Thanks, Renee. Thanks so much. I'm honored to be here with you all today and excited um, because I think we're at a critical time for learning from each other about ways um, to support and scale this work. Uh, Vital Village has had the privilege of being one of the scale communities, so we know a little bit intimately about what involvement in that process and learning from peer communities has felt like and it's been highly beneficial to our local work. So with Vital Village Network we've really focused on strategies to build capacity um, at the community level to promote um, all children having the best possible start in life um, and optimal life chances, healthy development and health trajectories, particularly social emotional health and development. 
Um, you know, and a lot of our work has been oriented very much in the way that uh, Soma shared around community-driven solutions. So an orientation that expects that we will find solutions that are existing within communities, expects that there are bright spots and successful practices that perhaps have not been fully invested in or scaled. So that's what we seek to find. One of our strategies for doing that is really catalyzing collaborations, thinking about all of the actors and sectors that are involved in the early childhood realm. What are those systems and how are they working together and how are they collaborating with and listening to community residents and stakeholders? So we create through our network opportunities to lead by listening, spaces that hold us accountable for remaining in communication and optimizing that communication, including shared language. Uh, a second thing that we do is really focus on what would a trauma-informed framework build and bring to enhancing existing efforts, things that are creative, that are already happening, that are already being invested in. What would a trauma-informed framework do to enhance that? And how can more people get involved? So using that type of orientation, we're able to foster more collective actions um, that promote equity um, and work to enhance um, innovations that exist within the community. So two primary strategies we use for our work, um, as has already been shared, is a co-design model, which is human-centered design, really thinking about processes that facilitate opportunities for community stakeholders to be at the same table with community-based agencies and a part of every step of the process of decision-making and a part of every step of the process of figuring out whether or not we're making the difference. What are the questions that we're going to ask? Who decides those questions? Uh, what are the improvements we're striving for? Who decides on those improvements? Um, it, with the human-centered design process, we really begin in a very simple way. We begin with voice. We begin with the idea that everyone's story is powerful. And we use a variety of different methods, from digital storytelling to different types of case study method, methods to um, empower people to utilize their voice and to build from that to the voice voices of teams, the voices of groups, the narratives of community. Um, we also develop tools for leadership and quality improvement, and we found that many of our partners have been able to take something like a PDSA cycle and personalize it to create their own language about it, whether it's called a feedback loop, and then to incorporate that, to create ownership around that, and to incorporate that in the work that they're doing. The second primary strategy that we use in a lot of our work is acknowledging another inequity elephant in the room, in that for many community members who are civically engaged in their community, volunteering their time to improve improve neighborhoods, improve schools, improve opportunities and life chances for their children, they don't receive credit for that work. They don't get reimbursed for that work. And they don't receive the same type of credit that you would get if you were a student participating in a service learning project. And so one of the things we do within our network is what we call credit for service. So we tie meaningful community engagement and community service to opportunities to develop skills, obtain certifications, um, and um, uh, 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 
develop yourself as a leader um, um, and have meaningful things that you can add to your CV. So one example of this work is the Peer Advocate Action Roundtable. This was a cube of community residents that helped co-design priorities around addressing unmet legal needs in their community. What emerged from this process is a tool called GRASP, which is a focused way of identifying and thinking about who your allies are, what your resources are, what your assets are, and strategies and approaches to build the team you need to address and improve conditions in your local community. What emerged from this then was a for credit certification in partnership with Urban College that allows residents to actually obtain college credit and a certification around advocacy, community-led advocacy skills. What also emerged from this were a volunteer group of mediators who were trained in social justice mediation who are now providing formal mediation of conflicts within the community for free. So we've built the base of people in the community who can help their neighbors. Um, they have the skills, they have the access, and they've received credit for their service. So that's been um, crucially important. Wow. Okay. Um, all my panelists, as you can well imagine, uh, those of you familiar with WHI are cramping a lot. <laughs> into these very short time slots, and everybody is uh, so accommodating uh, to that directive. Um, I want to just show uh, these are some of the dimensions of successful. Uh, all these slides will be posted. Uh, maybe, John, let's put up the uh, feedback loop, which is kind of a nice uh, – um, takeoff in some ways of the PDSA cycle, and that was what I was suggesting before in terms of adaptive ways and inventive ways. Um, Renee, before I turn to somebody else, just in case, uh, I, I should have uh, asked this right at the very beginning, but just to make sure everyone knows where are we in Boston, talk about the communities that are part a part of this right now. So our work really focuses on Roxbury, Dorchester, and Mattapan, really beginning with the central areas, Dudley Square, Codman Square, and Mattapan Square, and working out. But we are also intimately interested in relationships between those neighborhoods and, and ways in which they're connected. And how would you characterize those communities? Those communities have higher levels of poverty, particularly high levels of children in poverty. The school systems we work with is the Boston Public School System, which uh, suffers from, um, uh, 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 which has a wonderful degree of strengths, but also has a severe degree of challenges. And in their own recent report released, um, significant inequities in the performance, particularly for uh, Latino um, and African-American boys um, of color. And I guess the last thing, and I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be throwing these uh, uh, surprise questions at you. Would you say that community members notice something very different with Vital uh, Village Network uh, compared to the numerous kinds of efforts and initiatives and projects um, that are have grown up in that neighborhood, those neighborhoods over the years? Is there something that people palpably notice that's different? I would say that when we were starting our work, um, it, people were often surprised by the orientation of leading with listening. They always wanted to understand what we were really at the meeting for, what we were really there for. And we would always orient with, we're really here to understand the ideas that you feel need to be grown. And so that's a very different orientation. Um, 
I think that it is off, also very difficult to remain committed to that orientation at every stage. Um, I have learned to trust the process. There are many things that we've done that would not have been my first idea, but to allow to see what has happened as they've grown over time, it, we would never have predicted um, the success and the impact for kids so, and families. So very different than coming in with an agenda. Uh, absolutely. Wow. Okay. Can sit with some of those ideas. Uh, we're going to, uh, we're a little over the halfway mark, but we're going to get all of this in here. So be patient, everyone. I'm going to jump the pond <laughs> from uh, Boston. Uh, we'll, we'll fly right now uh, to Scotland and hear from Susan Hanna. Uh, the work there has been uh, very inspiring to many uh, in terms of uh, a whole country really taking on uh, childhood development and how you can begin to change that. So thanks, Renee. And Susan, take it away. Great. Thank you very much. So, um, yeah, we've, um, we've been working with, with UNIHI for more than 10 years and started that journey in healthcare. But the confidence we gained through using that methodology helped us to think about how we could apply those methods to taking forward some work in our early years collaborative but also building on prevention and early intervention to look at the poverty-related achievement gap of our children and young people in their education experiences. So we had two programs running um, side by side since 2012 and 2013, and last year we brought them together as one uh, children's and, children and Young Persons Improvement Collaborative under which we have a clear focus on um, excellence and equity, so excellence of the services that we provide, whether that be across our third sector and our charities working with public services, but also thinking very hard about how we address equity and the gap that exists within our uh, society. So many people will imagine Scotland to be beautiful rolling hills of heather and um, it all looks very beautiful and yes we do have um, wonderful expanses of this countryside but the reality is that like many uh, developed countries we have much of the social inequalities that exist and um, in, especially in our central belt and in some of our urban areas we have significant deprivation and areas of uh, family poverty and that's really what drives us forward with this agenda. We know that the impact of early childhood experiences and poverty has a profound um, effect on a child's ability to learn and achieve and as a child goes through their educational journey that gap widens. So if we don't get it right at the very beginning and continue to support and nurture um, early childhood into education and throughout education, um, we're unlikely to close the uh, attainment gap that we have set ourselves as a, as a key national priority for this next five to ten years. So at the beginning of the journey, we were very um, blessed to have Sir Harry Burns, who at the time was our Chief Medical Officer in Scottish Government, who helped us to launch the Early Years Collaborative. Now, Sir Harry's passion and vision for improving health outcomes uh, and uh, his influence has, has been critical for us in securing the engagement of senior leaders, and that's been a huge element of driving forward a large-scale national programme. The senior leaders were absolutely critical in getting this work off the ground. And that achieving um, a shared ambition across multi-agency improvement collaboration, creating a, a whole country approach which, um, which had a shared purpose with shared aims and creating a sense of urgency um, around what we could do and how we could do it. 
So the method has been absolutely critical and it's really the glue that connects everyone within this work across our 32 local authority areas. Um, we have some excellent examples of multi-agency teams working with improvement approaches um, and this is, has matured significantly in the last two years where we're now seeing um, some fantastic work ha happening within um, areas like social work and improving outcomes for our looked after and accommodated, some of our most vulnerable children in society, and work happening in prisons to support dads to nurture and care for their children despite their incarceration. Um, and speech and language therapists working much more closely with schools, thinking about early language and communication skills that will help to open up um, a child's full passport to education. So lots of multi-agency improvement work happening across the system. But really one of the critical elements to the work that we've been doing in Scotland has been trying to take the whole nation along with us as we've been working. And these national learning sessions um, have created the networks of improvers across our public services and working closely with other agencies um, who contribute greatly to, to this work. So. Um, as you would expect to see in a large room of 700 people, um, people congregate, they tend to go towards the people they know from their own um, sectors, their own agencies, but we try very, very hard to make sure that they're mixing, blending, learning and sharing from each other's experiences of driving forward this improvement journey and creating the conditions for them to network and share uh, much more than they have ever done before. So. Um, it's been a fantastic journey we've been on for the last few years and we're very excited about uh, the next few years. Um, we have a, a huge amount of engagement across early years and education and many people who are really uh, interested and curious about how this improvement science methodology really does act like the glue that, that brings us together and helps us to go on this, this journey together. Um, you can find out more about the work that we do in Scotland on this webpage and we also have two um, communities who collaborate on the Twitter uh, sites that you can see there. So please do get in touch and, and um, we'd be very happy to share more of our work with you. Thank you so much, Susan. And I know that's very, very high level. Um, so I do hope people will kind of dig into some of the resources here. I'll only tell you that uh, it's it's no small feat when uh, you have uh, children across the country uh, running every single day uh, it, uh, in in as part of the program, and also kids who uh, know how to create run charts and uh, sort of track uh, some of their own uh, progress. So thanks, Susan. All right, we're going to go to Greg next, and um, I. I take full responsibility for time management today. Um, I'm going to promise everyone if you start writing in uh, questions or whatever, one way or another, uh, we'll get to everything we can during the hour and we'll make sure that we also can address some of it uh, afterwards. I'll, I'll sort of <laughs> I'll parse these out. Uh, so go ahead, uh, Greg, and uh, don't feel that you have to talk quickly because this is hugely important what's going on in Northeast Wisconsin. So uh, I, I was thinking about over 90 improvement teams from almost as many agencies and across an entire region working to reduce poverty. That is not an everyday story. So what is going on in Northeast Wisconsin? Thanks, Greg. Well, thanks. Um, we're humbled and privileged to just be a part of this conversation. Um, we're relatively new to this journey. Um, but I'll take just a minute to talk about uh, how this started. And 
You know, I think one of the unique things we continue to hear from Ninian and those who have really partnered with us from IHI is that it's really a differentiator that it's funders that have really sort of spearheaded this movement. And so I work for a company called U.S. Venture, and we're actually a uh, distribution and marketing company for the energy, automotive, and lubricant um, um, industries throughout North America. So it sounds like an odd thing that we would be tackling poverty, but our company has a strong tradition uh, of giving back to the communities. We really feel a social responsibility to that, uh, and specifically within northeastern, northeastern Wisconsin, where our headquarters is, um, we have been trying to really get upstream on poverty and get to the root causes of poverty for about the last 10 years through the Basic Needs Giving Partnership. And that's a funding partnership with another uh, local family, the J.J. Keller Foundation, who for about the last 10 years we have been doing collaborative and innovative grants to nonprofits in, again, trying to really get upstream on poverty and, and stop sort of the emergency funding model and look at how do we get to um, some of those other precursors. So we've been granting millions of dollars in northeast Wisconsin for almost a decade through that partnership, the Basic Needs Giving Partnership. You know, lots of people were served and helped, but the needle on poverty continues to climb. Um, as you see on the on the slide there, not only the statewide poverty rate, but the three main counties within our region, uh, it just continues to tick up and up. And, um, you know, we're nearly at full employment in the region, uh, and yet poverty continues to climb. So we really knew that we needed to take a different approach. You know, there's models. Are there models out there where there's been large-scale transformation? And through our partners at Bell and & Health and ThetaCare, who have a, a long history of working with IHI um, and strong partnerships there, they introduced us to IHI and we began discussions. And honestly, we really saw some of the great outcomes occurring in Scotland that Susan just talked about, and it really intrigued us. And there was really some energy from a number of our funders um, that team up on this. So 12 months ago, we officially kicked off the POINT initiative, which is a Poverty Outcomes Improvement Network team. We formed a regional council to reduce poverty, uh, really consisting of very different sectors, uh, nonprofits, funders, businesses, which are sort of the usual suspects, but also chambers of commerce, health systems, and county services. And so in partnership with IHI, we developed a theory of change. And our vision is that all people in northeastern Wisconsin are self-sufficient and able to participate fully uh, in the lives of the community. Our theory is that there's really six key drivers of poverty. We really needed representation and subject matter expertise for those sort of six buckets. And the POINT initiative is really our first large-scale regional approach, and we really loved how IHI was focusing on QI and how it had worked again in other uh, large-scale areas that we've seen. And on that journey in really equipping nonprofits uh, to, to, with quality improvement methodology and tools, the response from the nonprofits and business community has just been incredible. Um, we have a pretty rich manufacturing and healthcare environment within the Northeast Wisconsin region, which already uses QI methodology and tools. Uh, our goal was to have about 30 improvement teams on this journey with us. Um, we've had close to 90, and um, the thing that really has been a game changer for us has been the corporate support 
um, QI experts from, again, those manufacturing and healthcare companies throughout the region um, have really helped bolster our, our sort of boots-on-the-ground local support. We have more than 30 local continuous improvement experts that can be vice presidents of quality improvement. Um, they can be lean facilitators. Um, but again, having more than 30 of those from the local community really being borrowed or donated from corporations to nonprofits has been a huge um, sort of bolus for us to um, sort of move the needle quickly uh, on, on quality improvement, but also as a key thing for us from a sustainability standpoint. And we really feel like this could be a model for other communities. And we really think we're on the right track because of the breadth and depth of sectors and organizations um, that you can see on the slide there. We really have a number of not just nonprofits, but service organizations from a uh, local government standpoint. And again, that corporate involvement um, and the funder involvement has really been, I think, a differentiator for us. So um, we're continuing to focus um, on this collaborative model and um, sort of our next steps are to use that, that QI methodology and tools and to start to really hone in on coordinating services around those individuals in poverty or on the precipice of poverty. All right, thank you very much, Greg. Uh, I really want to thank everyone who has uh, laid out in brief uh, some pretty complex and vibrant uh, things that are in motion right now. Uh, these are all efforts that we are continuing uh, to uh, stay tuned with and track, and hopefully we'll get you all back together uh, on WIHI and thank Ninyan and Shoma also for framing. All right, we have some minutes. I know it's not a lot, but we have probably uh, eight minutes <laughs> for questions or comments. So don't be shy. Um, I'm always curious from our audience uh, just how new this sounds to you, uh, whether you are a community uh, effort yourself or are you coming from the healthcare world uh, trying to learn more about uh, these uh, kinds of efforts and initiatives and how you might better link up to them. So feel free uh, to chat in some things. And uh, while you're doing that, I know you're um, – oh, I hear, see one. Question for Greg. How is the point measuring the change? Greg. So, great question. Within those six drivers of poverty that uh, I had shown on our theory of change slide, um, we have um, sort of a local scorecard of indicators that, um, you know, Kevin Nolan and Lynn Coriano, who heads up our, our is our project lead here locally, um, they, along with the nonprofits and some of our other funding partners, developed really a sort of a regional scorecard that gives some immediate indicators within those six buckets. And those are really supposed to show where are we seeing, seeing some gains in QI um, implementation. So if you think of things around education, it may be the number of GEDs that have been obtained within that month of reporting. Um, so there's a number of those types of sort of near-term indicators that we are monitoring. We're also in the midst of developing some intermediate indicators, um, sort of, you know, maybe three to four for each of those buckets that we know, like you look at Scotland, we know that reading readiness um, is a key metric for um, either kids in poverty or preventing them from moving into poverty as they, as they become adults. So we're developing um, some of those intermediate indicators. And again, our overall uh, aim is to be reducing the percentage of people in poverty throughout northeast eastern Wisconsin. So that, that uh, measurement is a journey for us, and um, um, that's where we're at. 
Okay, thanks, Greg. Question for you, Susan. Are you able to comment on the status of the parenting strategy in Scotland and what the evaluation is showing? So um, the parenting strategy in Scotland is um, quite multifaceted. We, we have a number of approaches in how we support and engage parents. Um, some of that is um, a national approach um, where we gift families um, book bug initiative. Um, there are certain universal pathway um, interventions that are in place that are universal across Scotland. But also there are a number of initiatives that are happening locally that are bespoke and tailored to the needs of local communities. So in relation to evaluating that, much of the evaluation out of the work that we do is at a very local level. It's quite difficult to aggregate across the whole country for some of that work. Um, what we do see is that where there is a good, robust and reliable um, set of interventions in place that address uh, prevention and early intervention for families and um, parenting skills, but it is having a direct impact on the outcomes, the developmental outcomes of children and their, um, their, their readiness for learning and engagement in their educational journey. Okay, thank you. Uh, still have time for more questions, and while somebody types one in, I'm going to throw one to Renee. Renee, you also uh, very much work in healthcare, and I'm curious as you <laughs> move back and forth um, between these th things that you're involved in, what would you say might be a good takeaway for healthcare, or what do you feel that you're hoping healthcare starts to get uh, about uh, with respect to something like Vital Village? I think we're already seeing some really positive progress. We're seeing much more interested in po interest in population health by the healthcare and the medical community. I think the, that awareness and orientation that population health is going to require a different set of strategies to promote it um, is really important. There's also, I think, tremendous ish interest in real partnerships with community-based organizations um, and meaningful partnerships. So we are all drinking the water now that health is produced in the places where we live, work, and play. That is where our health is produced. And um, the idea that communities can partner with health-serving institutions to help promote um, optimal health and prevent negative health outcomes, I think is very exciting. What strategies are, is it going to take to truly achieve that? I I do think there are some blind spots that we're all working on around decision-making, around processes, around stakeholders at the table, and the process of engagement and communication. So I think those are two key areas to be extremely mindful of, not just setting a table and inviting community members to participate, but the process of really um, uh, creating a space where um, opinions, ideas, strategies can be shared and recognized equally. Yeah, I, I, it just harkens back to what you were saying uh, about being at a meeting and doing so much listening. Um, I, I'm sure that is <laughs> challenging uh, for, for, for healthcare. Right. And it comes back to the Interaction Institute for Social Change uh, triangle pyramid that Ninon pointed out about what results do we want? 
well, what are the relationships we're forming? And where does trust lie in those relationships? And how are we facilitating that process? And ultimately, how decisions are made. Thank you, Renee. Um, somebody is curious, and Shoma, I'm going to go to you, examples of co uh, design using systems thinking with the human-centered uh, approach. Um, you know, this is sort of the, this integration of QI and, and the community. Um, could you address uh, that question? Sure, I'd be happy to, uh, Madge. Uh, I think, and I was beginning to write in the chat that, you know, one of the things that we've learned is that the fastest way to both break through impasse, and someone had talked about how do you get people who are skeptical uh, on uh, on board, uh, actually co-design is a great way to do that. So one of the things that's very helpful is to actually get people out of their their traditional environment, which may be either a boardroom table or a coalition table even, and instead get people out into the community, into neighborhoods that where um, if you're, say, trying to improve um, outcomes for people who are most affected, uh, you can actually see what's happening in those communities. Uh, I remember a, a, a group where we did that where um, they wanted to see how to improve the well-being of a, uh, and, the, and food and um, health outcomes for a diabetic population. And as they went to supermarket grocery shopping with people who have diabetes, they realized that um, Brazilian diabetics, for instance, who they'd been teaching to do, um, do nutritional label reading for, um, all, only had fresh fruits and vegetables in their carts. So all of the nutritional label teaching that had been done was of absolutely no value because there was nothing to read on a label. And often it's, it's sort of the, the simple things like that all the way to the much more complex things of really beginning to understand what it look, means for a, a mother um, a, a single mother, for instance, actually mapping out what it looks like for her to connect with different um, the, the food bank, the the WIC office, the uh, insurance office, and the healthcare appointment, and recognizing that in a week she may have up to twenty hours of appointments and up to five uh, coordinators uh, who from various agencies that are trying to help her manage the manage the improvement of her family helps us realize that we have we are often resource rich and coordination poor uh, as in our best efforts to try to improve lives that in fact we have often very wasteful duplicative systems and until we can really begin to see the whole picture from the eyes of real people whose lives are most affected, we can't actually come up with effective, solution, effective solutions, or at least it's a great shortcut to be able to do that. Okay. And what we found is as soon as we put the focus on that person who is most affected, suddenly like the skepticism and the other pieces melt away because it's about real lives and real people. Thanks, Shoma. Renee, you wanted to address one of the questions. I yeah. wanted to address this wonderful comment around um, driving participation, collaboration, networking when folks are disillusioned and dispassionate. And I think this is this is really important, and I'm glad we have to have the honesty to talk about this. Um, both Ninyan and Shoma mentioned earlier about joy in our work. And I think sometimes we give lip service to that, but 
that is actually truly important. And so if someone is disillusioned or dispassionate, sometimes that comes from a place of somehow not seeing yourself in the work or being not valued in the work, which is why we find storytelling and the you matter aspect of that and that individual narrative about the work as well as the community narrative about the work, a step we can't skip over. Uh, particularly when you're working with populations that have been historically disenfranchised um, for many generations. Inviting people to be partners at the table does not in undo a lifetime of systematically seeing that you have not been included. So the process of telling that story and honoring that story and appreciating that story is very important to the work moving forward. So thank you for asking that question. Okay, thank you. All right, I know we're at 3 o'clock. I want to just encourage uh, as many of you as possible to go ahead and chat in some questions and uh, what we'll do is we're obviously going over the hour just a little bit. I don't want to be disrespectful of people's time, but if you have some questions, go ahead and, and put them in here, and we'll see if we can't uh, address some of these, you know, uh, little short emails or whatever. Uh, you can also always ask some follow-up questions by emailing info at IHI.org. And my apologies for uh, not quite being able to get all the in, in in the allotted time, but uh, we really um, wanted to convey a lot, and we'll come back to this uh, topic uh, again, uh, rest assured of that. So um, there are next steps. Vital Village uh, is part of SCALE, as you learned earlier, and all the programs are going to be kind of putting together, I think, sort of their journey and their stories, and, uh, you know, over the next uh, months, and we'll start to hear more about uh, how all these things tend to fit together. Hopefully, there are both lessons for communities uh, and lessons uh, for healthcare as well in there. Um, I really want to thank uh, Shoma and Renee and Ninyan and Susan and Greg. Um, I'm not sure everyone has met, but hopefully everyone will. And I want to thank you for being a very good and patient audience. And again, go ahead. Uh, we'll leave the, the WebEx and the chat going uh, so you can uh, add some questions or any information. So thank you, everyone. Next up on WIHI, we're going to start talking about hospital flow. Meanwhile, back in the hospital, <laughs> they're still overcrowding and issues in the ED, but that's not the only place you need to be looking at when it comes to dealing with flow, and so we're going to see what's going on with work in that area. When you log off the program today, you can download the chat and any slides and uh, resources we shared. They'll also all be posted to IHI.org tomorrow. Remember, uh, in addition to the podcast, excuse me, the audio being on IHI.org, you can also find uh, this program as a podcast. Any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org. Org. And there are great people who help make WIHI possible. They include John Gothier, Matt Morris, Jameson Case, uh, Stephanie Garfunkel, Vicki Minden, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Haley Ladd. And as many of you know, it's my privilege to host this program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. I was thrilled and am thrilled to uh, be talking about health in the communities and how communities are sort of redesigning themselves and the work ahead 
head rather than having it be imposed. And I think that's very refreshing and very exciting. So um, I hope you'll join me in thanking our guests today. And for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, thanks, everyone. I'm Madge Kaplan. Have a good afternoon.